Well, good morning. I recently had the absolute privilege of going to the movie theaters to see the seventh and latest installment of perhaps the greatest movie franchise in the history of cinema, which you well know means I went to see the movie Creed, <laughs> also known as Rocky Seven. You thought I was going to say Star Wars, didn't you? No. I'm talking Rocky Balboa. And if you know the famous story of Rocky Balboa, then you know that it chronicles the life of this man from one of obscurity in the slums of Philadelphia to one of unrivaled greatness as the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. He is an unlikely hero from an unlikely place who achieves unlikely greatness in a never-before-seen way. And that is the fictitious story of Rocky Balboa, but in many ways, it parallels the story of the Christian church. Think about it. Jesus Christ is an unlikely hero. He's uneducated, at least in the formal sense. He's blue-collar. He's from a no-name town of Nazareth, and what good can come from Nazareth? He's in a part of the world that nobody cares about. He ministers as an itinerant preacher for three years of his life, of which we only have a handful of those days recorded for us in Scripture. He walks around an area of land his entire life that's roughly the size of New Jersey. He dies the death of a criminal. His followers desert him. He's buried in a tomb that's not even his, destined to be forgotten and never heard from again. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, sitting in pews in South Texas, worshiping someone, this very Christ, this very Jesus, who never even set foot on our continent. And yet we join with millions upon millions upon millions upon hundreds of millions of people around the globe worshiping the risen Lord this morning. And the question is, how? How did we get from the tomb in Jerusalem to the pews in South Texas? Now we know that it began with an empty tomb that first Sunday morning. We know that it then went to his immediate followers who swore that they saw the resurrected Lord and went to their death believing that. It then fanned out into Jerusalem and as Acts 1 tells us, into Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. And it still is moving and it's still going. It's the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest movement it's, there's ever been. It's the Christian church. And it is chronicled for us in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the birth, it's the infancy, and it's the early growth spurts of the Christian church. As we look at an unlikely hero from an unlikely place who achieved unlikely greatness in a never-before-seen way. It's the story of Jesus Christ and his church. It's the story of the book of Acts. Now, before we get to this morning's passage, I just want to take a minute, if you've been gone, and kind of recap where we've been. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, 
the resurrected Lord, after teaching his disciples, ascends to heaven, from earth to heaven where he currently resides. But before he leaves, he gives his disciples their marching orders in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is really the key verse of the entire book. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and, the remote, and to the remotest part of the earth. And so if you want to think linear, if you want to think as a timeline, you have the first Easter morning in April of either 30 or 33 A.D., and then you have him ministering for 40 days in his resurrected body, in his glorified state with the apostles, you have the ascension of Acts 1. You have approximately 10 days. Then the Holy Spirit comes, just like Jesus promises, promised it would, at Pentecost. And you have the birth of church. And we found that, we read about that, and talked about that in Acts chapter 2. And that brings us to this morning, the third chapter of the book of Acts. And we're going to take on this entire chapter this morning. So buckle up, get your popcorn ready, get all that good stuff, because we're going to be... We're going to be moving. And the chapter we're going to look at this morning basically breaks down into two parts. It's pretty simple. And they both have to do with Peter, who's kind of the, the star of the first half of the book of Acts. And the two parts are these. Number one, it's a miracle by Peter. And then sec after that, we have the message by Peter. So you have a miracle, and then you have the message. Hence, the title of the sermon, The Miraculous Message. I thought of that myself. Over the course of the week. <clears throat> Pretty impressive. So let's pick up there at the beginning of chapter 3. If you want to turn there, we'll start in verse 1. And we're going to look at this first of 14 miracles in the book of Acts. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here's the scene. we got Peter and we've got John, two old fishing buddies. Who also happen to be our Lord and Savior's two best friends. And they're heading up to the temple for prayer at, in the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m., one of the two major times of prayer that would take place at the temple. So, this, so the temple's buzzing. Okay, it's buzzing with people. It's kind of like wayside on a Sunday morning. We're just packed. There's people moving around. And this is one of those times at the temple. And so they're going up there to engage their fellow kinsmen. Now remember, the early church is Jewish. It's Jews. So it makes sense that they're going to go to the temple. They're going to pray but they're going to engage people about the truths of Christ Jesus. 
And so while there, they come across a guy who's been crippled his entire life. We find out in chapter 4, he's been crippled for 40 years. And each and every day, he's been carried to the temple, and he's been dropped down at this beautiful gate, probably the Nicanor Gate, in this massive structure at the temple. And it was so amazing, they call it the beautiful gate. And so he's there day after day, begging for alms, as people would enter and exit the temple. And when you think about the lame, when you think about the crippled, they had a prominent place in the ministry of Jesus. Prominent place. And I think the reason for that is that they are a beautiful picture of the reality of humanity. The reality of humanity. You know, our world tries so hard to pretend that there's nothing wrong with us. Our world tries so hard to convince itself that humanity is ultimately good. It's just a little bit flawed. In need of education. In need of sophistication. In need of tolerance. In need of just flat out goodwill. And while those things are fine and dandy and can be very beneficial, they do not get to the root of our problem because the root of our problem is sin. It's much deeper than a lack of education. It's sin. And so those remedies end up being like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound and they can't fix the problem. The problem that we are humanity that has been crippled by sin, that is desperate for healing, and yet continually refuses to receive the touch of the only one who can ultimately heal him. And so, so many go around the world and they walk about looking to counterfeit gods to convince them or to help them escape the reality that they are nothing more than a spiritual leper, a spiritual cripple, cripple pretending to be well. But this man can't pretend. So there he is. Same place, day after day after day after day, begging for sustenance. By the way, this was a great place to beg. He's not dumb. This is a religion that put a lot of emphasis on works, an emphasis on almsgiving, an emphasis on caring for the poor. It would be like you or me or somebody who's down in their luck sitting outside the doors of a megachurch after a sermon on how you need to care for the needy. So this is prime real estate, okay? This is prime real estate for asking for alms. And here's something that's worth noting. And I can't prove this. I can't say this 100% with 100% certainty. But there is a real chance that Jesus had walked by this man before. Jesus, as an, as an Orthodox Jew, Jesus, as a, as a faithful Jew, frequented the temple. And we read that this man has been a frequent beggar at the temple for years. And there's even a chance that Jesus and him made eye contact at some point, maybe at the beautiful gate. And yet Jesus walked by and chose not to heal him. I want you to think about that. Jesus did not heal everybody he saw. And for whatever reason, Jesus chose not to heal that man on that day. And that man remained lame. And that is fascinating. We so often want God to heal those around us and to heal us according to our demands and according to our timing. And when he doesn't, we oftentimes resent him. We resent him and come to a conclusion that either he is unloving or he is not real. 
And I would imagine after 40 years of begging, 40 years of being trapped in a broken body, this man has come to a conclusion that God does not care about me. He does not care about me, if he even exists at all. But you see, God had a plan for this man, and that included healing. But it was going to be done his way and in his timing. And so Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the great physician, walked by this man and did not heal him so that this day would come when he would be healed. And as I think about that, I was reminded of a man who means a lot to me by the name of Larry Martin. I got hired at O'Connor High School in 2006 by the best principal you could ever be hired by. Somebody knows that. <laughs> Truly one of my heroes and one of the most beloved men I've ever been around. His son, Matt, happens to be one of my best friends. And his wife, Barbara, they both attend here at Wayside. And while I was working at O'Connor, Larry's cancer, which had been gone for a good decade, came back. And yet this time it was terminal. And he had to resign his position as the principal of O'Connor. And the outpouring of love and affection by the community and by the staff and by the student body for that man was unbelievable. It was amazing. And as Larry was nearing the end of his life, his son Matt and Sean Hughes and myself and a few others, we organized this prayer gathering for Larry. And we came together and we prayed for a miraculous healing. We prayed that God would take his cancer. We anointed him. We laid hands on him. And we prayed with everything we had that God would heal Larry. And despite our prayers for healing, Mr. Martin passed away on January 28, 2010. His funeral was a week later and the church was just packed. You know, I mean, just over a thousand people. And Matt, his son, gave a eulogy for his dad, and it was one of the most powerful eulogies I've ever heard. I, I pray that my two boys will speak of me the way Matt spoke of his father. And as Matt got to the end of his talk, he said something along these lines. He said, you know, we all gathered together not too long ago and prayed that God would heal my dad, prayed that God would get rid of his cancer, prayed for a miracle. And on January 28th, God answered our prayer. God healed my dad. God removed his cancer. God performed a miracle just like we asked him to. You know, this, this, this is really hard. But sometimes Jesus passes us by. He passes us by. Not because he has forgotten us and not because he doesn't love us, but because there is a greater healing to come. There is a greater plan at work. There's a greater result in mind. And so we walk by faith, trusting in his goodness, even in the midst of the hard things of this life. And a hard life is exactly what this man has been living and so he sees Peter and John, and he asks them the same question he's probably asked thousands before them. And yet he receives an answer unlike he's any he's ever heard before, right? Because Peter looks at the man, and he says, look at me. Get your eyes on me. And then he says, and then I do not possess silver or gold, but in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up 
and walk. And he helps the man up. And instantaneously and supernaturally and miraculously, this man is restored to perfect health. So, of course, what does he do? He's jumping up and down. He's excited. He's dancing. He can't believe it. I, I got a good buddy from, who was in seminary. And uh, in the seminary class, he had to teach this passage in a creative way. And so he and his friends acted it out. And uh, at this moment in time, they had a little, they, all of a sudden, they blare a little James Brown. You know, and, he, and the guy gets up <laughs> and just starts dancing right there. And Prof. Hendricks, this really famous professor at Dallas Seminary, looks at them and then he goes, well, that was creative. <laughs> so I'm not sure what grade they got, but it's all, it makes for a good sermon illustration. So, so Peter, by the power of God, heals this cripple who has been begging at the beautiful gate for years. And the people see this, and of course they're drawn to it. We see that in verse 11. And here's what it says. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. So they run over to Peter. They run over this guy. They can't believe what's happened. They say, what is going on? What happened to you? And right at that moment, Peter shifts gears and he speaks to them directly about the gospel. He's going to point them to the cross. But before we get there, I want to just give you a couple observations. A couple observations from the miracle. Number one, I want us to notice how Peter met the man's physical needs and then use that as an avenue to get to his greater need, his spiritual need. He healed the man. He healed him, and then that opened the door for him to speak truth into the man's greater need, which was his spiritual need. Both are important. Both are important. Because if you say that God loves you or that I love you, but then you do not do anything to show it, it the, the message loses its power and loses its credibility. But if I move to alleviate your suffering and I never point you to my motivation, then I can unwittingly leave you in the dark about what your greatest need actually is. So Peter heals him physically and then speaks into that in the spiritual need, just like he saw his teacher, our Lord Jesus, do time and time again. Secondly, notice how Peter was ready to respond with the gospel at the drop of a hat. He's ready to roll. He must have read 1 Peter 3.15. Right? Okay, maybe even, maybe even wrote it. I don't know. Okay? Always being ready to make a defense of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Right? Peter's ready. And I think the application point is pretty clear. Be ready with the gospel. Be ready with the gospel at all times. And when those opportunities arise, boom, move in and speak into that. You know, I would imagine nobody here is going to uh, heal, is going to command a paralytic to walk, at least successfully, okay? But as you live out your life, and your faith empowered by the indwelling spirit, the miraculous life of Christ will be revealed and reproduced in you. And you become a person of joy in a world of sadness, a person of peace in a world of turmoil, a person of courage in a world of cowardice, a person of truth in a world that is full of lies, 
a person of grace in a world of revenge. The miraculous life of Christ is revealed and reproduced in you. And for better or worse, that's going to draw people in and they're going to say, what happened to you? What is your deal? And when that happens, you take their eyes off the God that is in you and you point them to the God that came for you and the God that came for them and you point them to the cross, which is exactly what Peter does, starting in verse 12. Verse 12, Peter says, I mean, excuse me, it says, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by your own power of piety, our own power of piety, we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name it is the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So as you can imagine, they run up to Peter and they want an explanation. How would you do it? And Peter says, guys, guys, brothers, this is not a secret. I did this by the power of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God, the one true God, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And guys, if the name Jesus sounds familiar to you, it should, because you killed him. You killed him. You put to death the prince of life. I mean, this is blistering truth. By Peter. This is not fire and brimstone preaching. This is like blowtorch and brimstone. I mean, this is in their face. And look, we all know the reality is that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us have the blood of our Savior on our hands. And to the question of who killed Jesus, the correct answer biblically and theologically is I did. And so did you. But Peter makes clear that these guys he's talking to had a unique responsibility for the death of their Savior. For two key reasons. Two key reasons. Number one, they are Jewish. They're Jews. And Jesus came for them. He's their Messiah. He's one of them. He came for them and they killed him. And Peter's clear about that. And secondly, he says that they're uniquely responsible because they were there. They were there at the crucifixion. They were the ones when, whom, when, when Pilate said, I can find no fault in this man. Let's release Jesus. They said, no, you keep Jesus and you give us Barabbas. They asked for a murderer and put to death the holy and righteous one. This is just blistering truth. And if this is where the sermon ended, if this is where the message ended, then it would be pretty depressing for those guys. 
But this is not where Peter ends because this is not where the gospel ends. We as Christians preach judgment and condemnation because those things are real. But we preach a message, this is what we preach, that there is a presence of sin. It is a real thing and all of us are infected. That there is a penalty for that sin. And that penalty is death and separation from God. But that God in his great love made a provision for that sin. And that is Jesus Christ our Lord. So Peter is honest about the fact that the blood of Christ is on their hands. But he's also clear about the fact that the blood of Christ can cover their sin. And so after Peter preaches the reality of their sin, he now offers the reality of the hope that exists in their Savior starting in verse 17. He says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So Peter starts off and he says, Guys, guys, look, I know that you were clueless. Now that doesn't excuse you, but I know you were acting in ignorance. But here's the deal, guys. Here's what you need to understand. Is that this suffering was predicted and prophesied in the very book that you read. It's there. You just didn't see it. Go back and read it. It's there. Go back and read the prophet Isaiah. Especially chapter 53. Go read Zechariah. Especially chapter 12. Go read David in the Psalms. Especially Psalm 22. Go read the book of Daniel. Go read it. It's there. You just did not see it. You just did not see it. The Messiah had to suffer because by his wounds we are healed. The cross was not an accident. The cross was not a mistake. The cross was what had to happen from the very beginning. And you see, this is what was so confusing for the Jews. And you can't really blame them in some ways. And if you can understand this, this next truth, I think it will help you certainly unlock this passage and even scripture for you. This next few verses are packed with truth. So I want to set the stage. The Jews had what was called a messianic expectation. They were looking for a, a special individual who would come and would set up shop there in Israel. And that they would have a kingdom that was everlasting. And it was full of glory. And it was going to be full of spiritual and material blessing. This was their expectation. And they were absolutely correct in expecting that. 100%. Right on. This was their expectation because this is what was promised to them time and time and time again in the Old Testament by the prophets of God. This idea of a future regathering and restoration in Israel and a blessing, a time of blessing that would be instituted by this special person called the Messiah. And this person would come and have an anointing from God. And the, the, the name Messiah means anointed of God. It literally means the anointed one. And when it's translated into Greek, Christos, and then into English, it's the word Christ. They're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the Christ who's going to come, going to set them free from Rome, set up shop in Israel, and here's the kingdom that they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds to thousands of years. And they were correct 
and having that expectation. Here's the deal. They just got one thing wrong. And this is what you need to understand. They saw, they looked at it this way. They expected everything to happen at the same time. Messiah comes, kingdom comes. And all the blessings connected to the kingdom. That's their expectation. Their expectation is that it is one event. It's a package deal. Buy one, get one free. Buy Messiah, get kingdom, bam. Let's roll. And we know this is their expectation. And guess what, guys? It's their expectation after the resurrection. Think of Acts 1-6. This is when Jesus has been teaching the apostles on the kingdom of God. God, post-resurrection. And what do they ask Jesus? Is now the time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That is still their expectation. And how does Jesus respond? It's not for you to know the times that the Father has put in place. It's not for you to know. In other words, Jesus doesn't tell them, hey guys, quit looking for it. Because it's now. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, quit believing in some fairy tale future kingdom. Get over it. He says, not now, but later. Amen. It's coming. These promises are not voided. They're just not yet. They're just not yet. So in the meantime, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the meantime, you go make disciples. You leave that to God, but you don't give up on those promises. Don't you give up on those. They expected one event, one movie, so to speak. We're on the movie theme. They saw it as one movie. Messiah comes, kingdom comes. And in reality, it's two parts. It's two phases. Phase one, the suffering servant born in a manger who died on the hill for my sin and yours. Phase one. Phase two, conquering king. Not yet, second coming of Christ, when all the promises will be fulfilled in all their glory. And Jesus points them to that day and says, in the meantime, you make disciples. You make disciples. If you can understand that, I think that will unlock so much of Scripture for you, so much of prophecy, so much of the kingdom of God, second coming, eschatology, Christology, God's plan for redemption. It'll unlock so much right there. And look, I understand that there is um, some disagreement when it comes to the kingdom of God. This is a debated topic. But nobody would say that the kingdom is in its fullness right now. Nobody would say, look around, this is the kingdom. This is the fullness of the kingdom. They would not say that. Nobody says that. They're already, but not yet. There's stuff that is yet to come tied to the second coming of Christ. And this is what Peter is talking about. And so once Peter has corrected their eschatology and informed them of their guilt, he now offers them their only hope in one of the great gospel calls of the entire Bible. It's amazing. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So hang with me here. Hang with me. Right here in verse 19, we see Peter call these Jews to repentance. 
The word repent has to do with having a change of mind. But it's more than just an intellectual deal. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart as we turn from our sin and turn to God. And Peter is calling these folks, both as individual Jews and as the nation at large, to repent, to change their mind about who Jesus is and to embrace him as their Savior, to embrace him as the true Messiah, the Christ. And he says that if they will repent, if they will turn to Jesus, their sins will be wiped away. Wiped away. They will be saved as individuals. They will have their sins forgiven. And when the nation repents, the times of refreshing and restoration will come. In other words, the kingdom's coming. When Israel repents as a nation... Jesus, who is waiting in heaven, is coming. And he's going to bring the kingdom that he promised. And he will fulfill all the promises that he said he would do. And that's Peter's message to them. And this truth is not only significant for Israel, but it's significant truth for you and I this morning 2,000 years later. Because Peter's call to repentance is not just aimed at the hearers of his day, but us as well. The message is clear in Scripture. Repent and return. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Change your mind about who God is and what God says about the world and get in alignment with him about who he is and what he says about the world. Repent and return. And if you do that, your sins will be wiped away and you will experience the only thing, you'll experience what only God can give, which is forgiveness, refreshing, and restoration. Not just now, but in the age to come. When thy kingdom comes and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we will be a part of that. You know, I... I don't know where you are this morning. That may have just, you may have just checked out for 10 minutes. If you did, come on back. Okay, come on back. You know, I don't know where you are this morning, but I would imagine in a group this size, there's definitely some people sitting in our pews this morning who feel really far from God. And there's definitely some people in our pews this morning that feel like there's something in their life that the, the honest to goodness truth, if we were to just project it on the screens, it's just unforgivable. And God could not handle it. Friends, if that's you, I want you to think about this truth for just a second. If God can forgive and restore the very people who put Jesus on the cross, if God can forgive and restore the very people who said, give us Barabbas, you can have him. We want Barabbas, crucify him. If God can forgive those people. What makes you think he can't forgive you? What can there possibly be in your life that is too much for God to handle? His grace is sufficient. I was watching the state championships yesterday on, uh, on TV, the high school state championships, and I saw, it took me back to my coaching days, and I saw the coaches there on the sidelines, and they got their Expo marker. We'd carry like six rounds, like guns, like a holster, you know, just whip out our Expo. And, 
get on the sidelines. We would talk to our guys and we'd get on the whiteboard and we'd draw up a play and say, hey, here's how we got to respond. Here's what we got to do. And then we'd get done. We'd move on to something else and we'd just get out the eraser and bam, that whiteboard's clean. Expo comes right off, just bam, clean. And what God is saying is whatever sins are on the whiteboard of your life, adultery, addiction, divorce, abortion, apathy, he says God has the way and the ability to erase that board and to wipe it clean. And he's the only one that can do it. And when he erases that whiteboard, of the sins in your life. Nothing will stick on there again. As far as the east is from the west. That's Peter's message. That's the whiteboard of life. The whiteboard of salvation. <laughs> Erases our sins. We celebrate. Oh, the chapter closes with Peter reminding them that they, the Jews, are the sons of the prophets. They are the sons of the covenant. And that God has not and will not forget them nor forsake them. But Peter makes clear that if they do not repent, they will be judged. And so will we. We celebrate Christmas five days from now as we reflect on the baby in the manger who went to the cross of Calvary. And when we reflect on the great story ever told of Christ Jesus our Lord, we celebrate his great act on our behalf as he died for our sins, as he wiped our sins away, as he claimed victory over sin. And yet we remember him as well about what is yet to come. We also celebrate what is yet to come because his work is not finished and he will come again. This time not as the suffering servant, but as the conquering king. Judging sin and making all things new and good and true and beautiful and bringing the times of refreshing and restoration. We had a beautiful picture of this last Sunday, and I'll, I'll close with this. I had the privilege last Sunday of doing uh, three baptisms at the 11 o'clock service. And that's just such a special time as a pastor and for a church to celebrate baptisms. But if you would have stayed and lingered... A little bit after the 11 o'clock service, you would have seen one more baptism. A baptism of a, a dear man in my life, a guy by the name of Robert Griffin, whom I have known since I was a teenager, who is currently suffering from stage four pancreatic cancer. And Robert knows his days are numbered. He knows it well. And he was baptized as a baby, but he wanted to have a believer's baptism in front of his family. So... It was because the 11 o'clock, because of health reasons, he couldn't be here for the service at 11. So he came after church and we just kept that water. We kept that tub full and we kept that water warm for him, you know. And so he came here to get baptized. And as he was up there right before he got baptized, Roger asked him, hey, is there anything you'd like to say to the people here? Because there were still people kind of uh, hanging out in the sanctuary. And so he said a number of things. But then he said, you know, I am so thankful for the cross. I'm so thankful for the cross. And then, he, and then he talked about how excited he was about what is to come. His gratitude for what God had done and his hope for what was to come. And friends, that's the picture of baptism. That's the story of the, 
the Christian life. That's the story of this sermon. It's us identifying with Christ's death and being buried with him, having our sins wiped away by the blood of Christ. And then it's the story of us identifying with his resurrection as we are raised to a newness of life and as he in his glorified state guarantees us that your time is coming and that your hope is secure because you have identified with my burial and you have identified with my resurrection. You too will experience the time of refreshing and restoration when I come back. That's his message. And that's where our hope is. And our hope is based on his promise that those who will repent, those who will turn their, from their sin and turn to him, will have their sins wiped away. And they will experience the time of refreshing and restoration that only God can bring. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning and just thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that is filling this place, your spirit that, that illumines the text that we may understand. God, we thank you for prophecy and fulfillment and the hope that it brings us that though you have accomplished much and there is still yet some to come, that we can place our hope and trust in you that you will finish what you began. God, I pray for those out in our body this morning who are hurting. Those who Christmas is not a time necessarily of celebration, but it's a reminder of heartaches in the past. And God, I pray that they would feel your love and your presence and your spirit in a never before felt way and a peace that can only come from you and a hope that can only be rooted in you because you are what is true and what is good and what is faithful. And so we place our hope in you and say we praise you for what you have done. And God, we look forward to what you will do. And in the meantime, you send us out to make disciples. God, may we be faithful in the call. We look forward to the day where sin and evil and heartache and disease are no more. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for taking on flesh as a baby in a manger. We love you, Lord. And it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. We're going to have some folks up here who'd love to pray with you after this song. But uh, I gave you 40 minutes to rest. So now let's stand and let's sing this last song as a, as a family.